0: Welcome back to P- New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at Saint Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Christian Jogi Phillips to discuss her new book, Nowhere to Run: Race, Gender, and Immigration in American Elections, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Why has the underrepresentation of women and racial minorities in elected office proved so persistent in American politics? In Nowhere to Run, Dr. Phillips argues that any analysis must contend with multiple dimensions of identity, context, and the simultaneous dynamism of opportunity and constraint. Complementing previous studies with her original data sets and rich interviews, Phillips demonstrates how two simultaneous and interactive processes shape electoral opportunity across groups. At the national level, majority white districts sharply limit realistic opportunities for Latinx and Asian Americans of either gender to get on the ballot, and partisan politics further narrows prospects for women from these groups. At the local and group level, within districts, and among Asian American and Latinx political elites and activists, the scarcity of viable opportunities exacerbates informal processes and institutions that tend to push Latinas and Asian American women further from the pipeline. Phillips' integration of national and local level processes reveals that the pathways to getting on the ballot are few and far between for Latinx and Asian Americans, and especially fraught with prospects for exclusion of Latinas and Asian American women. Race and gender simultaneously constrain and facilitate electoral opportunities. These sharp differences and opportunities across groups help explain persistent underrepresentation among elected officials. Dr. Christian Jogi Phillips is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Southern California. Her research addresses political behavior, electoral institutions, and political incorporation with an emphasis on the intersection of race, gender, and immigrant communities in American politics. I am delighted to welcome her to the New Books Network. Hello, Susan. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for making the time difference work. Um, Let's start off with what led you to this project? Um, you have terrific acknowledgments. It's one of the favorite things uh, that, that I like to read. That's the first thing I always like to read in a book. But but tell me a little bit about how, and the audience, about how, how you came to this project. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been thinking about the questions that
1: animate this book for a very, very long time because you know, being um, an academic is really my second life. I had a previous life um, in the American labor movement as an organizer and a political director. And, you know, for folks who aren't familiar with what that work is, for me, it really meant that I got to wake up every day um, thinking about how I could challenge and support women, um, particularly women of color, particularly women from immigrant communities, really push them um, to lead and have a voice in their communities and in their workplaces and and in their own lives. And and that work was incredibly important to me. I, you know, I was constantly surrounded by amazing women and men who, who wanted to lead, you know, who were willing to take risks, who were ambitious with their leadership. And, you know, at the same time, you know, and, and we worked to help people learn how to get elected and how to, you know, run run an organization and and really lead their coworkers and their community members. But at the same time, I saw, you know, working in the United States and California and Texas, what everyone else sees when they look at American politics, right? There were not a lot of women of color in elected office. Um, and so, you know, I had this persistent set of questions about what it, what is the disconnect here? Here's all these amazing people who want to lead, who can lead. And yet they're not the ones populating you know, city councils and governor's offices? How could this be happening? Um, And so then I I came to political science and uh, looking for the answers. And, you know, I I noticed two things right away. One is that the the sort of the mainstream literatures on race and ethnic politics and women in politics, they they really seem to be talking past each other sometimes on these questions. You know, in, in women in politics, there was a lot of conversation about, sort of that individual level decision calculus. How does someone make this incredibly hard decision to get on the ballot or not? Um, And then in the race and ethnic politics literature, there was, you know, an emphasis on sort of the context. Is this a a good place to run? Can a person of color get elected here? How do you amass the resources to run and win somewhere? And, um, you know, there was that dynamic. And then there was also this dynamic where I saw immigrant communities and, and the ways in which they were sort of fitting into and reshaping electoral politics. They weren't, there wasn't as much conversation about that other than voter behavior. There wasn't so much on, you know, candidates and the elite side of the equation for immigrant communities and electoral politics. And, you know, and then, so for me, I saw those two dynamics and I thought, well, you know, this is exactly the story I came here to sort out. Um, and, and then I discovered, you know, as I was working through this stuff, you know, there's this incredible literature on women of color as candidates that I'm, I'm so happy that this book is a part of. And, you know, a lot of that work just gives you so much rich in-depth insight into what's happening within communities and, and within districts and within particular institutions. And so I really wanted to create a study that took sort of the richness of each of those different fields, right? That created an, a way to understand that decision making at the individual level, but within that rich context, right? With an awareness of groups and communities. And then I also wanted to sort of understand how power is exercised and, and moves within marginalized communities, right? And how they understand them how, how people understand themselves as not only negotiating with other people that they are in community with, but also at the same time negotiating. Larger forces at work in society, and so and so that's how I really came. You know, to, I think the, to the two big questions that really animate the book. You know, I really wanted to understand how this big series of population changes in the late '90s through the 2010s that I cover in the book. You know, how did that shape electoral opportunity? How have we come to understand descriptive representation as changed or not changed because of those population changes that are largely driven by immigrant communities? And then the second, you know, how are those immigrant communities, like I said, responding to, but also reshaping and making their own, the democratic processes that we all have been looking at?
0: I want to talk to you about descriptive representation. But before we we, we leave, sort of how you got started on this and uh, and my love of your acknowledgements is that for me, it was really gratifying to see scholars whom I admire and or trained with in your acknowledgements, people like Jane Jun and Tae Lee. And and also the way that I think you beautifully articulated the need for creating spaces, the need for dedicated mentors and writing partners. And I I thought that for anybody out there writing right now, this is kind of a good thing. I'm I'm going to direct you to the argument and the book. But I think that as you're all thinking about your identities as writers and also identities of writers as women of color. This is a beautiful, beautiful description of why these spaces matter and how much work it is to create them. So it's kind of a beautiful um, introduction to the book. So thanks for writing that. Thank you.
1: Can I just say about that? You know, the thing that I think, the thing that I think those mentors, both my academic mentors, but also all of the women that I talk about who really helped shape me as an organizer and as someone who thinks about power, You know. I, I'm not sure that I would have been able to conceptualize how important it would be to not only to create spaces for the work I wanted to do, even as I was making it, if I hadn't been in those situations with them because they were also creating spaces for their leadership, even as they were learning how to be leaders themselves and that sort of simultaneous risk taking but also like you know sort of righteous belief that what you're doing needs to be done i think is something that all of the women i talk about in the acknowledgments as well as my mentors in academia really emphasized you know was 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 the way to go and and was what would be necessary to write about women of color the way i wanted to in political science and i'm really thankful for that and and i can't emphasize enough what you said you do not stand alone in this work especially to do it in political science and and i'm really grateful for all the writing partners and mentors along the way
0: no and we need to talk about it and we need do we need to acknowledge it's part of what i think is our role and we'll we'll never be tenured or not tenured on that graciousness but it is in fact what i think defines the very best scholars and and the more of these introductions i read and the more people that i speak to the more i realize that we have a real continuum in terms of the people who are willing to acknowledge their mentorship and be mentors to others versus others who see themselves as on an island. Um, for a lot of political scientists, the need for diversity and representation is, is assumed or old hat, but for listeners around the world and also uh, scholars in other subfields, let's start with a quick definition of descriptive representation, because your definition is actually a little bit different from what some listeners will remember from their Hannah Pitkin. Um, so so start us off by, by talking a little bit about, about why we should even care that more people are, are in these positions of, um, of lawmaking and leadership.
1: Yeah, and I think that my, my definition of descriptive representation is definitely informed by the practical work that I did in politics before I came um, to academia. And, and I think about dis, you know, descriptive representation is oftentimes an immediate, right? If incomplete and imperfect signal um, to constituents, to other people, to actors who have power and don't have power in politics. Of who has a say and who is involved in decision making. And it also has a particular set of functions among the groups that I'm concerned with in this book, which is potential candidates or people thinking about running for office. Because descriptive representation also sends signals about what types of people win in which types of places. And that's an incredibly important strategic consideration, not only for people who think about running, but also all of the support networks and resources that are required. To support a run for office, right? So organizations and their leaders, donors, consultants, they also are reading signals from descriptive representation as an indication of um, the strategic merit of a type of
0: person running in a type of district. And so I
1: I really approach it from that sort of practical electoral politics perspective.
0: Okay, great. And, And, you know, I found it very helpful sometimes as a political theorist and somebody who studies American political thought, you know, I... I juxtapose what is agreed to in political science with what seems to be not reflected in the popular narrative. I, I think of the sort of multiracial democratic promise of abolition and the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments, but how it was thwarted by states that nullified those amendments uh, that were clearly designed to create more equal citizenship, and I see a lot of what you're doing as as trying to explore. Well, what does it mean to have that multiracial democratic promise? And you say, you know, political scientists are using that as the means of evaluating democratic governance. But it is interesting to sort of see that that tension sort of floating throughout American political discourse. Um, You're significantly building on research, on descriptive representation, and you lay out different literatures that you're building upon. If you'd briefly describe the two literatures and a little bit about how you're adding to them with your nuanced attention to intersectionality and also the addition of different subject groups.
1: Sure. You know, I I think about the way I situate myself in the literatures on descriptive representation, um, but also about just democratic incorporation in the US more generally, you know, I I come from a perspective that I, I think, you know, feminist theorists like Patricia Hill Collins and others who look at women of color's feminisms really take, which is that, you know, we can learn about this democracy and its processes Best uh, by looking to those who face the boundaries of it most explicitly, right? That is how we learn about the inclusiveness of our democracy, and that by centering women of color, you know, we can learn about all these other groups that we more typically talk about in large studies in political science, right? That may be bigger in number, but 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 you know, I I want to make the argument that you know by looking at these groups that sometimes are described as small or specific, um, we actually can learn quite a bit. About the processes that relate to all groups in corporation. So, you know, when I think about sort of the literatures on the bigger groups that I'm contending with, you know, there's there's a, a really rich discussion in political science about what are really the roots of underrepresentation for women and for people of color. And there's a couple of sets of literatures that treat those as parallel groups. Um, not all, right? But you have literatures on racialized populations and. Those that literature really looks spends a lot of time on voter behavior with good reason, right? Um, but when it comes to elites and candidates and sort of their role in descriptive representation, really looks a lot at majority minority districts and sort of what happens. How do you create the conditions where voters can elect someone who looks like them if they're from a minority group? Um, and and how and how do those and they're really sort of internal to the districts, right? And um, and then you have another set of literatures, where you know, in the gender and politics literature, there's this, there's been a long-running, really rich discourse on the decision to run, right, and and how women make sense of stereotypes and the things that people, the criticisms they will face and the disruption to their lives, and and whether that shapes their ambition or their willingness or the need, do they need to be pushed to run more than men do? Um, And and a lot of that um, discussion is incredibly helpful for sort of understanding the real and personal consequences that I feel I saw when I was working in politics um, at the individual level. But in that literature, there isn't as much emphasis on the group, the community, right? And how that informs that individual level calculus, that the group and the community, particularly amongst people I was interviewing for this book, The group in the community are as much part of the individual calculus as figuring out who's going to start picking up your kids once you get elected after school. Right. Um, And so I really wanted to understand how, you know, we could bring those two literatures together, as I said. And so there is this wonderful literature about immigrant communities, Latinas and Latinos and Asian-Americans in particular, that has started to really explore some of these dynamics um, and thinking some of it really focuses on some of the thinking on how Latinos are perceived by voters as candidates. Um, there's a little bit less work on Asian Americans, but it's, you know, it's it's definitely a growing part of the literature. And for me, you know, I, I really see this conversation within these literatures about, you know, one, that being a woman of color in, in white male dominated institutions, it is this shared but really distinct experience for Asian American women, Latinas, and Black women, right? And that we really needed some some real, some theorizing about how race and gender and immigrant community identities are shaping the experiences and pathways to candidates in very distinct ways for Asian American women and Latinas, but also Asian American men and Latinos as well, right? Um, I absolutely argue in the book that gender doesn't, you know, leave itself at the door, right? Race and gender and this sense of, nativity or immigrant community identity really is working on everybody at the same time but in very, very different ways. and so I really wanted to have a comparative study of these two racialized immigrant communities so that we could not only you know focus on how race and gender really work in these very distinctive ways um, but also so that i could we could look at immigrant communities in a comparative context and see that, These things work differently for immigrant communities with different trajectories and different histories of incorporation. So that's kind of how I see this book kind of coming to the literature, both on race and ethnic politics and um, gender and politics, but also to the broader literature on electoral politics.
0: And, you know, and to be clear, you're focusing on the two largest immigrant based communities in the US. And so the, the I mean th- these are not randomly chosen at all. And you're very, very clear in the book how it is that this isn't isn't it's two things. It's understanding what's happening in those groups, but it's also we can't understand American politics without understanding these dynamics. Um, you mentioned your interviews and I want to just talk a little bit about data because I think part of what makes this book so distinctive and such an amazing contribution is This combination of this incredible data set with a great acronym, GRACE, the Gender, Race, and Communities and Election data set, and these interviews. So, uh, GRACE incorporates data on, on state legislative candidates' races and gender, I'm sorry, candidates' race and gender identities, as well as like trying to contextualize the district. And you do this for nearly every legislative election from 1996 to 2015. It's 62,000 observations. So this is huge. But then you also do these 54 in-depth interviews. So uh, talk a little bit about the challenges of uh, uh, of the need for and the challenges of creating this data set um, and, and also the the interview work as well. Yeah. So I had the thank you so much for sort of
1: recognizing the the complexity because that's what this book is here for. I'm here for the complexity, and and my hope is that the research design contributes to a study that can clarify that complexity but not simplify it. You know that that's really I think the goal often with with intersectional research is, is is really to help clarify and bring to light how these complexities complexities are working, but never to simplify it or, or, or act like it's not messy because it sure is, you know? Um, and so I, I really had two big goals for the research design. You know, one is I really wanted to figure out how to capture dynamism and structures and the granularity of interpersonal processes and broad national patterns. Um, and this is, you know, when my mentors and advisors Absolutely start saying narrower, narrower, smaller, smaller. This is this is starting to feel pretty unwieldy. But you know, I really wanted to do what I was talking about earlier, which is look at that complexity of the decision-making calculus within these multiple contexts that in real life people really are nested in, right? You are your own person, but you you have you're situated in a domestic arrangement, right? And that domestic arrangement or your home life is also situated within your community or the group that you belong to. That you see yourself belonging to in society, and you're in a district, and that district is located within all of these electoral dynamics across the state and across the country, and and I wanted to be attentive to how those things overlap, right? That, that we can't actually discount them as we do the analysis, because those national dynamics are absolutely part of what's influencing whether or not this one woman decides to run or not. They are part of the picture, um, and so to do that, I really did need different types of data to, to speak to not, not necessarily to sort of slice off, you know, I'm going to use the big observational data just to look at the likelihood of getting on the ballot. Or, you know, I'm just going to look at interviews just to look at the decision making calculus. What I tried to do using the GRACE data set and all these tens of thousands of state legislative elections, the interviews across the country, as well as this large um, survey of sitting state legislators that I did, is I wanted to have those three pieces of data in conversation with each other throughout the book. And, and, that, and, and that, I think, speaks to the other big concern that I had for the research design, which is that I wanted to contribute to this growing and incredibly rich toolbox of strategies and methods for incorporating intersectionality theory into larger empirical studies. That's, that's, that's what chapter two is all about. Is is how can we advance this project in political science that is challenging and complex, of bringing the you know what we know from intersectionality theory and all this great work that's been happening, into studies that have larger end, right that that have um, both attention to what's happening at the individual and group level as well as national context and state context, um, you know I wanted to show explicitly what we can gain in political science by, you know, by doing what Wendy smooth, my former colleague and wonderful scholar, what she calls the messy work of intersectionality research, because it is my position that we can do even better. We can learn more. We can be more precise by embracing the complex, the complexity of people's lived, uh, you know, realities. Um, So that's, that's how I bring that together. Um, and, And it was really important to me to sort of, think about that work um, in terms of the data collection in conversation with each other. So when I'm talking about majority minority districts, there's large N, um, you know, regression analyses of presence on the ballot and all of that stuff. But then there's also interviews to really start to help unpack some of those findings in that chapter. And and that happens throughout the book. You know, the the chapter, I have a chapter on explicitly on decision-making at the individual level and how it is informed by all of these group level dynamics we haven't necessarily been talking as much about. And and some of that stuff is from individual interviews as well as a national survey of sitting state legislators. So I really try to sort of bring it all together in each chapter in a way that um, just helps to sort of lift up some of those key um, dynamics without necessarily trying to make them tidy as we go along.
0: No, there's nothing in this book that tries to make things simple or tidy. However, it's exceptionally clear, and you're very, very good at demonstrating why it's complex and then trying to bring it down to these are the three conditions that shape descriptive representation among the candidates, et cetera. And one of the things I think is really great about the writing is the way uh, you develop uh, just a couple of examples of visualizations. Uh, For example, I loved doors and pathways. I thought doors and pathways of of, you imagine this this building, this uh, legislature and these doors that are open. And some of those are open to some groups and not to others, but the pathways to getting to those doors are differently. And I I found that exceedingly helpful as the as the book progressed. So I don't want anyone to walk away thinking that this is messy because it's not. It's exceptionally clear, but it is not trying to wish away any of the um, the complexity that we actually find in politics. I I, I want to get to the chapters but I I can't help asking a question about vocabulary. So you, you take Mary Hawksworth's racing gendering and you change it to race gendered. It's important to you. I was wondering if you would explain that change and also whether there were any other words that you obsessed about in, in, in the book, like that you had to give thought, I'm not going to use that word, or I am going to use that word.
1: Wow. Okay. So that that second question is is a, is a pretty challenging one. I mean because for your first book what what are you not obsessing about as you put it out into the world? Um, Mary Hawksworth's race gendering concept I think is is a really important part of the way that I theorize this book and, and the modification of it is 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 simply to to be able to use it as sort of this this starting point for under this point for understanding sort of how these groups begin moving through the world, right? And it's not necessarily a finite boundary or, or um, an essentializing set of labels, right? But really a way of understanding um, how they're moving through processes and how they are viewed by others. And, and, and I think that, you know, thinking about, I think the thing that I spent the most time thinking about and being, and really considering was actually how I thought about um, the other groups in the study, right? And how much how much to think about um, Black women explicitly, for instance, in the study. There, it's so clear from my work, and, and I hope clear from the introductory chapter, that so much of the theorizing in my book really builds on the work by and about Black women in political science as candidates and leaders. Um, and, and at the same time, I think that what's clear is that there there are things that are shared and and, and things that are not in terms of how Black women and Asian American women and Latinas are subject to sexist institutions and racist institutions and have their own histories of incorporation. And so to me, I thought a lot about how to um, understand the location of Black women even as the study was not about black women and there there isn't theorizing about black women's experiences. But I think at certain points in the book, it's important to bring in empirical data as a comparison case, right? Um, Because here's another group of women of color who are contending with race and gender from marginalized positions in American politics. But that marginalized position is quite distinct and requires its own books and and its own theorizing. Um, And so, and I, I thought a lot also about White men in this book, and um, it, you know, one one time, one of my esteemed colleagues who you know introduced me at an APSA panel and was talking about my book, and she said something like, "And if you want to know what you really need to do, never take your eyes off white men." Christian Jogi Phillips wrote a book about that, and I, I thought to myself, I think that is an important um, part of what I'm trying to argue in this book is that in order to understand representation and the challenges and obstacles and opportunities, we have to also be thinking not just about, you know, what I sometimes call in the book, the crumbs, right? The the small slices of the pie that are sort of, these are where people of color can run, these these majority minority districts. But we also have to think about the rest of the pie and who has power in the rest of the pie. And that is white men in white majority districts. and so I had to really think about carefully how much I wanted that to be at the center of, of, the, of the different processes that I was really looking at in the book, because they could easily take over the whole book, right? Um, but so so I think that what I came to was really a balance of really looking carefully at these, these communities that are not the focus of that much research, especially on um, candidates and elites in political science, Latinas, Latinos, and Asian American men and women, um, but while also recognizing that there are these other dynamics um, that are related to patriarchy and white hierarchy and that white men are part of that, Um, but that that's really more of sort of understanding the context of power and the context of resources that minority groups, um, both women and men, are operating in.
0: So uh, throughout, and, and actually I think you really succeed there. I mean, I think you keep the focus on these groups that are all on the outside of the positionality that white men have. And one of the things that I think is really great about the book is that you, on the one hand, respect the work that's been done on majority minority districts, but you demonstrate just how rare they are. And I have to say, I was actually shocked when I saw the numbers. I was like, really? That's right. They're they're such an exception. So instead of studying the exception, I think what you're trying to do is you're, you're trying to explore the, the, the fuller context in which the macro context, I think is what you call it. Um, You've covered so much in so many of your answers, but I, I do want to take us to a couple of the chapters um, because you, you make such like sort of remarkable, uh, you have such remarkable findings and they're so clearly done. So... Just talking briefly about Chapter 3, which is called Candidacy in Context. You know, there you're talking about these um, uh, expanding the lens, which you've been talking about throughout the interview, and shifting the lens from this individual level, and you said that at the start, to a much more interactive, much more macro level, and you're arguing that immigrant identity plays you know a, a huge role in advancing the likelihood of candidacy among Asian Americans and Latinas and Latinos can you just say a little bit more about that about that chapter because it it seems to be uh, not just chapter three but it this this contribution about thinking about, these groups who are are not exactly immigrants. <laughs> they, they're, they're, they're both. They're, and, and actually, maybe I should ask you to define that how you're defining the groups as well, because in some ways you can think of both uh, Latinos, Latinos, and Asian Americans as founding communities in the United States. They're both here from really early and or before, and they're they're extreme, you know, they're not all all of the people are not immigrants. Anyway, you make this distinction better than I'm making it. So so tell us just a little bit about chapter uh, three and, and the importance of introducing these groups.
1: Sure, I, I think that in terms of what you were saying about sort of expanding the lens for how we understand this individual level decision, I had both empirical and theoretical concerns for that. I think the empirical concern is just, is a fairly straightforward one, which is that I think that if we tend to only look or mostly look at white men and white women as our comparison case for understanding differences in how groups approach the idea of the acceptability, right. Of running for office. I think that our understandings are going to be, you know, um, really informed by the disproportionate political ambition of white men. And, and so everyone else is going to look like they don't have much ambition. Right. And, And at the same time, I think that, um, so that was really just the empirical concern, right? And, and why I felt like I why I wanted to build the data sets, both the survey and the um, the legislative election data sets, as broadly as I did, because I really wanted to expand just our empirical cases for understanding difference and, and and comparative levels of of different concerns, including ambition. I think that the theoretical expansion I really wanted to make was was twofold. Um, one was this idea of uh, that I think is really so well um, explored and there's still so much good research happening in the women in politics literature of sort of how is this going to change my life? How is running, and and the real, you know, what I heard so much, especially in, in talking to um, women of color I interviewed is the disruption, right? And And to me, I wanted to really expand the way we think about that disruption, not only as this is the set of, challenges that women face but i wanted to understand that disruption within domestic structures right and that there are these structures that not only create disruption for women but they often facilitate candidacy for men and to me looking at sort of domestic considerations and how this is going to affect my family and my life through the lens of both understanding it as structurally tending to create obstacles for women and structurally tending to facilitate and make things easier for men was an important expansion that I wanted to, I wanted that asymmetry to really, that I was seeing in all the interviews to really come out. The second expansion is in thinking about groups, including immigrant communities, right? And I think that the sense of, um, and this has been one of the really rewarding things in talking to people from the Asian American and Latino communities about this book and the findings is, is I, I did want to bring to light and into our theorizing the particular sense of obligation and responsibility um, and and, and how that can generate ambivalence about running for office in a way that's particular to immigrant communities. You know, um, the multi-generational project of coming to the United States, establishing a life here, and as first, second, and third generation immigrants continuing to contend with the perception that you're a racialized group of not Americans, um, I think, is something that really, uh, you know, I had heard in my in my life before becoming um, a scholar, and and I continued to hear in so many of the interviews that that people talked about their relationship to America, and the and the American project in this incredibly sincere way. And and I was you know I was giving a talk a few weeks ago, and and, and I realized something, which was that. I think before I did this book, when I was working with candidates and, and really doing campaigns, I really thought that talking about an obligation to America or, or you know, what this country gave to my parents, you know, I'm, I myself, I'm the child of immigrants. I really thought that candidates, though, when they talked about that stuff, that's just stuff for flyers. And that's just a spot for TV. And I was having these incredibly emotional mm. interviews where people were talking about, no, no, really. Like this country gave my family something. And even though it's gonna disrupt my life and I'm gonna be subjected to all these things, I see it as important not only to to repay some of that or to participate in this democratic project, but also to be responsive to the reality that other people in my community don't have this kind of chance for a voice in this place. And that and that I I really want to be that voice. And I think that's where that's where some of the the tensions and ambivalence really come into play that that were particularly evident amongst Latinas and Asian American women that I talked to. This sense that, you know, I made it right or I am the product of all of this hard work, not only of my parents, but my aunties and, you know, my cousins and all these people in my community have worked so hard for so that I could go to the fancy school so that I could be this leader. And at, at the same time, I can speak for them and speak with them But also the way that I think about risk might be a little bit different than other people because so many people have put so much into me, right? So my parents came to this country, reshaped their whole lives so that I could go to this fancy school and become an engineer with a stable job. The way that, and then for me to say, I'm going to go try and have a job where I could get fired every two years by the voters and have my family dragged through the mud doesn't exactly comport with those expectations and definitions of success in my community. And I think that that wrestling with that, um, as well as the, you know, the potential other opportunities, like running a nonprofit or advocating in other ways, I think really did create a lot of tensions and ambivalence about running um, amongst the Latinas and Asian American women that I talked to. And, and that sort of the way that it's situated within immigrant experiences, even if your family came three generations ago, right, you're you're still contending with that racialized immigrant experience as a second and third generation person. That, that, sort of, that sort of constellation of issues wasn't something I had really seen before in the literatures on candidates and representation. That, and that I really wanted to, to bring into the way we think about that decision
0: the book ends with two chapters one is called if not here then where and the other is she came out of nowhere and there you look at what you call an extreme test case which is los angeles county and you say look here's a county with large immigration populations really strong coalitions of racial minorities they're democrats there's large labor unions there's a very effective uh, latino latina political infrastructure and you use this to make some final observations about how these dynamics among the groups and at the intersection of gender come out. So if you just say a little bit about those two chapters and and how this case allows you to really bring home what you're talking about in the book.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I study LA County for the case study because it it really provides, like you said, this extreme case opportunity I think of. And I, I think that in everyday discussions about politics, you know, people talk about LA and Southern California as a place where immigrants and people of color and women, you know, the sort of the political tides here tend to be more open to their incorporation and their leadership. Um, And yet when you really look at the data and and how these um, different structures that have emerged that do advance the work, uh, the the ability to advocate for communities of color and immigrant communities, um, what you find is that the the gaps between women and men are pretty typical for the rest of the country, right? There There isn't some sort of magic that happens in Los Angeles where you suddenly see, because, you know, we have all this access for people of color to, in politics and immigrant communities, and and women are, are part of that in in some new and bigger way i think makes the case that if we're not thinking about race and gender and immigration we're really missing part of the picture of representation right and and you know like like you said latinas and latinos have an incredible structure for political and electoral work here in los angeles across the county and latinas have you know there there have been some variations over time but they they don't they are not at the center of those elections and that representation. Um, and you know, Asian Americans, this is one of the largest Asian American communities in the United States, and there really isn't much political infrastructure for Asian Americans as a pan-ethnic group. And so that those two things have very different consequences for women in those groups, right? On the one hand, for Latinos and Latinos, there's such an incredibly intricate scaffolding, right? Um, for sort of helping people leverage political opportunities, because it takes a lot to run in L.A. County. This is a big place, and politics is expensive here. But that that scaffolding acts as a fence that really excludes Latinas uh, in a a pretty systematic way I show in the book. At the same time, the scaffolding for Asian Americans is pretty non-existent. And so the, the supports and the things that Asian American women would need to run like again, in a place that's very expensive and very um, resource-intensive to run in, that's not there to help them become successful candidates. And so, I, I hope that what Los Angeles shows is that in this place, and you know, the sidebar is we didn't have a democratic, you know, democratic <laughs> Democrats in power here until very recently, right? But we do have this big metropolis that's, uh, you know, one of the centers of progressive politics in the country. And still here, right, white men have a lot of flexibility in where they run in terms of district composition. Women, uh, Latinas and Asian American women tend to be um, represented in much, much lower numbers than men from the same racial groups. And our political, our informal structures that really um, create access to resources tend to be really race-gendered, just like in other places.
0: So in the conclusion, you say that there are some changes that if they were made maybe could make a difference in representation. And I wondered if you would share those. Sure. I think there's
1: a couple of things that are always on my mind with sort of where do we go from here in this book? One is about districts. Um, and the reality that, you know, when, as you said, majority minority districts are absolutely the exception in nearly every state. Right. Um, only three states, there's only three states where the majority of districts are not majority white. And, um, you know, the the median percentage uh, white per, of the white population for districts across the data set during the current iteration of districts is three quarters, right? Um, so I, I think that district composition and majority white districts are really a place where we can think creatively about some of the innovations in, in redistricting that are happening around the country and 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 sort of what's next for the way we can think about drawing districts and and, and all of that. I don't know that that's the most hopeful next option, right, given, given the politics of the day, but I do think there are people and groups working at the state level to try to think about how the way we draw districts could change. Um, I think the second part to me, is absolutely where progress can and should happen. And that is in how organizations and leaders who are so instrumental in supporting the candidacies of men and women of color, how do they calculate risk? How do they decide what a good bet is? And how can they be more expansive about that thinking outside of majority minority districts? Right. Because there are wonderful leaders, both men and women of color, in districts that are not 60 percent um uh, people of color. And that that is the vast majority of the competitive opportunities for representation in this country. And I think that if we start to, you know, look at some of the data in this book that shows that people can be incredibly successful regardless of where they're running, we can change the conversation away from one where women of color in particular are just constantly getting having their opportunities narrowed for representation and instead move to a conversation where we start to look at Here's where we have incredible leaders who can be there and, and be a real voice for their community um, in a more expansive way and, and in w- many more districts than we're currently talking about.
0: So this is clearly a book for political scientists, and I can't recommend it enough. It's clearly written. It's outside of my field. I s- could still understand everything I was reading. And you weave in both the data, uh, the, the, the big data set, and the interviews, and the sort of just and the survey in just a terrific way. But do you think activists are going to read the book and do you think they can do something with it? Like, will that help them with that measurement of whether something is in fact risky or not? Was that one of your hopes in designing this? It absolutely is one of my hopes.
1: I think that, and you know, I have a couple of practitioners who blurb the book and I was so, you know, flattered and humbled by that. Because some of the conversations I had after interviews when I would go back to some of the folks that I talked to who lead organizations were about, you know, some of the things that I found, which is, you know, is the list of criteria that you use for thinking about um, what type, you know, the backgrounds or the activities of candidates you want to support, is that itself sort of a product of the race, gendered backgrounds of people who came before that you used to, you know, that you've always sort of supported? How can we take a look just at that that sort of simple set of mechanisms for how groups decide who to even pay attention to? And then I think the other conversation is about um, really talking about the success rates of women of color across a, a variety of districts and thinking about what could be if those if there was more emphasis on funding and structure building in some of those districts, not all of them. Right. I, I, I want organizations to be careful with their money and resources, just like everybody else. But I think even those two pieces of the conversation, just in thinking about who do we look at, who do we see as viable? I, I really want organizations to think about who they're not seeing. Right. With, with given the current array of criteria they use. And then I also want organizations to think about where they should be looking
0: and, and really expand that view. So what are you working on now? I know that this book just came out and and that was a lot of work and it's a lot to say, okay, so now what's next? But tell me a little bit about what you're working on now. I'm really excited about
1: my next project. And it really looks at the ways in which our working lives are important sites of political education. You know, we learn so much um, every day, both in our work for wages in hospitals or small businesses, but also in our unpaired, unpaid labor, um, you know, advocating for a child in public school or navigating an elder through the Medicare system. And in all of those experiences, we learn so much about who has power, how groups interact with each other, how that power is exercised and the consequences of speaking up or staying quiet. And I think that those political lessons, we have so much room to grow in political science and thinking about how that informs political participation and political attitudes. And and I think that the two groups that we have sort of the least theorizing about in terms of work, paid and unpaid, are immigrants and women. And so my next book is focused on um, three communities, Filipino, Korean, and Indian American, women and men, and really thinking about how gender, nativity, and economic roles really shape political participation and attitudes. And I'm really excited about it. We have a pilot study that we've gotten some data back on essential workers because um, immigrant women are overrepresented amongst essential workers. And, and I think that one of the products of the pandemic is that we've all paid a lot more attention to both you know, who is doing the work that we need to survive as a society and also how our systems for dependent care, when they collapse, where those burdens fall. And my book really wants to look right at the right at the intersection of those two things.
0: Well, you're gonna to have to promise to come back to New Absolutely. Books of Political Science to have a conversation about that one because I think as we read newspapers, people just say essential workers as if they are just essentialized as those two words. Absolutely. So this looks terrific. Thank you so much. Uh, We've been talking about Christian Jogi Phillips's Nowhere to Run, Race, Gender, and Immigration in American Elections. It's from Oxford University Press. Highly recommended. And thanks so much, Christian, for joining us today. Thank you. It was my pleasure.